Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hey, guess what? We want to hear from you specifically. We have been doing the Money Advantage podcast for over three years, and we've covered a lot of ground, financially speaking. But if you have been listening and you have not heard us answer your burning question, we would love to be able to do that. So we have a great new way for you to be able to communicate your specific thoughts and ask us a question that we can answer live on the show. If you go to themoneyadvantage.com, you can click on the link at the top right-hand corner that says, send us a voicemail. And you can record a voicemail that we can play on the air. Now, this can be done from your desktop or even from a cell phone. It's literally so simple, and it's a way for you to be able to share your thoughts with us so that we can give the most specific, clarifying answers to you, because that really energizes us. All right. Good morning, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. We are here to talk today about Bob Murphy's new book, The Case for IBC. I don't know if you really want to call it new. It's been out for a couple of years, but fabulous conversation about the simplicity of the infinite banking concept. So you see Bruce Weiner here with us in the show, my co-host. And then we have Dr. Robert Murphy with us today, actually as a second repeat guest. You were on about three years ago when we were first getting started with the podcast. And I really want to say thank you so much, Dr. Murphy, for being with us again today. Thanks for having me. Glad to do it. Awesome. Well, if you are listening and you're maybe considering infinite banking, maybe you've heard of it as privatized banking because we use that term a lot, or maybe you've even heard of cash flow banking and you're interested but still skeptical, I think this is going to be a perfect conversation for you because we are going to talk about the case for infinite banking. And whenever you have a case for something, it's because there probably could be a case against something and we want to figure out the differences and really work through those. So I think there's nobody better than you, Dr. Murphy, to be able to share with us today really what some of those very simple ideas are that are in that book, which I know that you co-authored with Nelson Nash and also with Carlos Lara. So we're going to get some fabulous perspective with that. And in case you have not seen or heard Dr. Robert Murphy before, I'll say Robert P. Murphy. Um, He is a free market economist. He's testified before Congress on energy markets and monetary policy. He's given numerous interviews on TV and radio. He's the author of hundreds of articles in several books. Now that is an accomplishment in itself on economics topics created for the layperson, including one of his most recent, which is the case for IBC. So Bruce, I know you have a personal relationship as well. I would love to have you talk about that a real, real quick before we get started in the conversation today. Yeah. So good morning, everybody. Um, uh, Dr. Murphy and I have known each other for, gosh, I mean, it's, it seems to go, it's over 10 years. And uh, I first was exposed to him at uh, a, a night of clarity in Nashville, where he and Carlos actually were opening up people's eyes of what really caused the the crash, uh, the economic crash in 2008. And I sat sat in the front row and uh, Mark Benson and I just uh, took everything in. And um, it's it's interesting, Mark Benson and I had used, um, uh, we had used cash value whole life um, since the 80s. And and I've said to people on the show before, my my parents actually took out a policy on me when I was born in 1963. 
So I had been doing it for years and years, and and they really weren't they were really weren't talking about the the values of whole life at that time. They were just talking about the economics of the basically the business cycle, the the, the boom and bust cycle. And I became enthralled by it because as a person uh, in business, you understand you understand that something's going on. But Bob is, has a very unique ability to, uh, in my opinion, to um, explain things on the you and me level. And that's what we talk about banking, you know, taking taking the access of the banking system on the you and me level. So uh, I've had a really good uh, business relationship and a really good personal relationship with uh, Bob uh, over the years. Um, I love to share um, and go karaoke singing with him, although I never sing. He's an excellent singer, uh, which but it's a lot of fun. Uh, so we've done some of those things together. Uh, we've had dinners together, and it's just been a wonderful experience. And people are going to really, really um, get it uh, a really nice introduction if they from Dr. Murphy about the economics of this and how it all works today. So thanks, awesome. Bob, uh, for, for being on here today. I appreciate those kind words, Bruce. And likewise, I'm uh, glad I've known you for all these years. And I know you're doing a great job up there with your clients and explain this to them and show them a better way to you know use their money. Uh, yeah, let me just mention a bit of my backstory is oh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a professional economist. I was teaching in academia. I ended up in Nashville, took a job there in the financial sector, and then I left and went out on my own. And then I, I met Carlos Lara, who's you know one of the, the co-authors on, on this book. And, uh, he, and he's the one who introduced me to Nelson Nash's ideas. And at the time, you know, having a PhD in economics, and I was looking and I thought, oh, this guy, Nelson, he's a charming man, I'm sure. Like there's a lot of wi worldly wisdom, you know, in these books and, you know, he's a very spiritual man and everything. And sure, a great guy, I guess, to have a beer with or so. But I thought there were several things wrong with this so-called infinite banking concept. And then it was just over time, mostly it was that I didn't know how whole life insurance worked. I just was thinking in terms of term policies, that's really all I knew. And so that's, that's largely what it was. And over time, I, I came to realize, why? Why isn't everyone doing this? This is so obvious. And so that's, that's how we got into that. So yes, as Bruce, as you say, I try to like sort of, you know, someone will present something the way Nelson might have said it or the way, you know, someone coming from the insurance sector would say it it might not make sense to me. And I think about it in terms of economics and then, Oh, that's why that works. And so if I explain it, you know, sometimes it clicks with people if I say it in different words or coming from a different angle, but we end up at the same spot. Well, and I think that's one of the values of having multiple people be able to explain what infinite banking is. And there's also different personalities and different skill sets that are trying to grapple with this concept that seems like this hidden gem it seems like this thing that nobody knows about and that if you have heard anything on the street about infinite banking or whole life insurance, it's more than likely negative versus positive. And so then you have the personalities that say, well, I'm very skeptical. Uh, it sounds too good to be true. How in the world are people that are smart actually doing this? I don't understand. And you have people who are more conceptual. You have people who are more tactical. And all of those different people are trying to figure out for themselves is this something that I actually want to do? So I really appreciate you sharing your background of skepticism, which is extremely beneficial to somebody who's also maybe a little skeptical. So let's talk about, um, so you and Nelson Nash and Carlos Lara created the, the IBC or the Nelson Nash Institute and the certification program. Talk about that a little bit. And then let's jump into why you specifically created this book. 
Sure. And also David Stearns was integrally involved in uh, creation of the Nelson Nash Institute. Um, so it's, yeah. So again, I gave you a little bit of background as I realized what this was, they had me come down to what's called the think tank, which is the annual conference that the infinite banking professionals um, have every year in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was a guest speaker and that's where I saw presentations and you know, there were like CPAs getting up and doing things. And I realized, Oh, this, this really works. Like, you know, this is, isn't just, you know, some people waving their hands around and, and talking about general things like there, you know, there's real numbers behind this and it, it makes a lot of sense. Even you include the taxes whenever it makes even more sense. This is great. Um, and so Carlos and I uh, wrote a, an earlier book called how privatized banking really works. And you, I know you guys mentioned that you like that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually Carlos's idea that he was the one saying, look, Bob, you as an economist, I was a subscriber to what's called the Austrian school. So at the time, just to give people, it was like, this was like 2009. Um, so people remember there had been the financial crisis in the fall of 08. And then um, they were doing, Ben Bernanke was doing all sorts of crazy, you know, QE things. Mm-hmm. And at the time, and so I was going around with other economists who were very skeptical of activist Fed policy warning the country about this that's going to cause boot you know the business cycle and inflation perhaps down the road as it, as it turned out it wasn't as, as much in the, in the near term as we had worried and carlos was telling me look at you austrian economists are trying to you know get rid of the fed ron paul was campaigning on a slogan of end the fed and so forth but that you know that's take, takes too long people can't use that because you got to change public opinion that's way down the road with not what nelson nash is doing people can implement privatized banking one household or business at a time and sort of secede from the system. So you don't have to convince everybody or even 51%, just one at a time. And you know the, the way the Austrians think the business cycle works, uh, if you're doing IBC, you're not contributing to the problem because in the Austrian view, it's commercial banking that expands and contracts the credit supply. So if you're getting, you know, financing your purchases via um, life insurance policy loans, then you're not contributing to the boom bust cycle in the Austrian view. So it's not that the Austrian economists said that, you know, they didn't know about whole life or talk about it, but Carlos was the one who put those two ideas together. And mm. Nelson had always been a fan of the Austrian school, but Carlos was the one who realized, no, this is not just an affinity. Like there's a deep connection here between these two different camps. Um, so then we were, Carlos and I were going around giving presentations to the public and life insurance agents would hire us off and to come do that, you know, presumably knowing that they were going to be able to sell more if we, if we came and talked to a crowd about, you know, look at the, look at the big picture here. And then I was explaining why these policies made sense. And, and a lot of these standard criticisms didn't, didn't hold water, but ultimately, you know, we, we were just going off of if, if like David Stearns or Nelson Nash knew these guys personally and said, yeah, they're good. Go ahead. You can you know, help them promote their business, but we didn't know. And so over time, we just realized this isn't going to work. We need a more formal way of both, you know, training agents to make sure they know what Nelson's uh, principles are and how to design these policies correctly. But also, so we feel comfortable that if we're going to push the public into the hands of certain life insurance professionals, that they know how to give them a Nelson Nash policy. So that was the birth of the uh, IBC practitioner program. Um, you know, of which Bruce is a you know a graduate and so forth, and so so that's that's kind of how we got more formally involved. And then, yeah, Nelson, Carlos, and I would go give public lectures, and that's what what this book is. I realized after a few years of us touring and giving public lectures that we had developed a lot of new material that was just in our oral presentations or you mm-hmm. know on PowerPoints, 
And I realized there's no book that has this. If we get hit by a bus next week, we're going to have a lot of life insurance death benefit because <laughs> we all had a lot of life, but we're not going to have, you know, this new material. So that's what, you know, we tried to codify and get it in this book. Some of that stuff that I realized, you know, was not an in print. So, so, so Bob, one, one of the things I like about the book is, um, and, you know, I, I know you contributed, but the, the very beginning of the book talks about uh, business owners kind of get this first. And that's, that, that says to me, that's, got to be Carlos. Oh yeah, definitely. Know, uh, talking about this. And it is really true. And when I, I actually talk about this a lot, and I don't know if I, you were the influence or Carlos, or I don't care who the influence was, but I always talk about um, is a form of comparing it to actually capitalizing a bank, you know, um, because it's your own personal bank. Because a lot of times people say to, say to us, well, I don't know if I want to do this because I don't have access to all the cash value right away. But if I leave it in my bank, I have access to all the cash value. And I say, well, you know, anything worth doing, you have to, in a in a in a business situation, you have to capitalize that business. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to give up some liquidity for it. And I tell them, you know, to get a bank charter, you're going to have to bring in tens of twenties of millions, thirties of millions of dollars that cannot be tapped for. I've had I had a buddy that started a bank. He had to put it up and wait ten years to get a bank charter, so he didn't have access to that kind of billions of dollars for that long. And um, so, if you think of it from a, and that's why business owners, I believe, understand it better than maybe the general public, because they're they don't see the benefits of tying your capital up in the short term for long term benefits. So that is one thing that I like about the book. the The other thing I like about the book is the is that there's a really good emphasis on paying your actually paying the loans back, mm -hmm. and that is really um, I tell people all the time this is not magic. This is not something that a person that doesn't have good money habits should be doing, because if you just think oh I can just save and spend save and spend save and spend save and spend or just worse not even save and then spend, just spend on credit, then this isn't, this isn't a good concept for you. Because what you really need to do is you, you need to do your normal habits, which you're using, just save it in a commercial bank and then spend. But then you lose all the opportunity costs uh, over in this side. So I'm glad that it emphasized those two things, capitalize and pay and pay the loans back. So what else do you see that the book offers the, to the reader. Well, sure, I appreciate that. And, and you're right, so yeah, the beginning is Carlos, is, is coming from the, the portion of those, those public lectures that Carlos uh, did in that, that chapter one where he, he does like the typical business owner. And they're part of what he's emphasizing and why he believes that business owners often this, this concept clicks with them sooner than with other people is the, is the importance of cash flow. So for like a salaried employee, you know, they kind of know every month how much money's coming in the door and then they have their bills and they just got to make sure, okay, let's make sure we don't, you know, we spend less each month than it's coming in and we're fine. And then we have our long-term goals and so on forth, you know. Um, but with a business owner, particularly if it's a very seasonal business, you can't do it like that. You know, some businesses, they might not have much coming in and then they do, like if they're retail, they might do most of their business in the last three months of the year, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so Carlos was, was, you know, explaining, you know, first to the the live audiences and then in the book when we codified it and put it in print that 
typically what the businesses do is they'll have like a line of credit with a bank, you know, a regular commercial bank. And he's explaining how that worked, but then showing, look at all the ways they get their hooks in you. And so if something goes wrong, then they've got, you know, liens on all your property and they take everything. And so, you know, your local banker goes from friendly to not so friendly once things turn. And, and so that's one of the ways that, you know, he was showing business owners, if you could wean yourself off the commercial bank by building up this, you know, alternate bank, then, you know, don't you see the benefits of doing that? And, and business owners would, would see that. Whereas again, people who budget and just get a normal salary every month that they get, it's pretty dependable. They might not see the advantages of that so much because they're not so dependent on like lines of credit from a commercial bank just to, you know, get through rough parts of the year when their cash flows low. So there, there was that element. Um, yeah. So as far as what else is in this book, I, I like, um, there's a part where we go through common objections. And I think the way we handle some of those is not something you would see in other uh, things. So for example, uh, I came across a pretty sophisticated critique of IBC a while ago from an, from another economist. And he said, you know, this concept actually makes sense. All they're really doing here is using an asset is collateral to then borrow money from some other institution to finance their cash flow. And they happen to be using life insurance for it and using you know, the cash surrender value and a dividend paying whole life policy as the collateral and borrowing from the life company. But in principle, you could take your house as long as you had a bunch of equity in it and go to a commercial bank and take out either you know, a home equity loan or a HELOC, you know, get that set up and use that. And so since that's the, the, the concept this critic was arguing, it has nothing to do with life insurance. And the only reason they're doing it with life insurance is because they want to you know, get the commission. So I go through and explain why, no, actually, that's a perfect illustration of why Nelson was right to pick this particular vehicle or platform of a dividend paying whole life policy. So real quickly, just think through the logic of that. Okay, you, you want to you know, get a, go to a commercial bank and use your house as collateral to pay for your daughter's wedding, let's say. They're going to still run your credit, check your credit score, ask you for your sources of income. You're going to have a formal repayment plan, you know, saying mm -hmm. you got to make these payments out to service the loan. And ultimately, if something happened, you got sick or got laid off and you couldn't make your payments, ultimately, they would take your house from you and sell it and pay themselves back and then give you whatever's left over. Whereas with, you know, if you did it using life insurance policy loans, they don't run your credit. They don't ask you what it's for. They just give you, assuming you've got it, they just give you the money. And then if you, something happens, you get sick or and you don't pay it back, nothing happens. No one comes and takes anything from you. And so, so that sounds too good to be true. It sounds like I must be making something up or whatever. And then, but just explain, well, no, it's the nature of the collateral. For example, last thing I'll say, I know I've been talking for a bit here. Why is it the commercial bank's going to run your credit or whatever, even if you have a lot of equity in the house? And it, you know, it's a, a relatively small loan or it's an over collateralized loan because no matter what, you know, the housing market could crash. Or yes. if you know the bank's going to take your house, you might stop taking care of it. Or I mean, there's cases after the 08 crisis of people like pouring cement in their toilets and stuff just to stick it to the bank that was evicting them. You know, there's all so that sort of thing that the bank, no matter what, they don't want to be in a position of evicting you and then selling your house. Like they don't want to end up there. And so that's why on the front end, they're more careful about who we're going to give loans to, mm -hmm. even if the assets very, you know, over collateralized. Whereas with the life insurance side, it's just a subtraction problem because they owe you the death benefit or the cash surrender value. If you surrender the policy, they won't lend you more than that. And so at any given moment, 
you know, they've got on their books, your loan balance rolling over at interest and they know they're getting paid. You know, if you die, then the death benefit check, they just subtract what they're owed and send the balance to the beneficiaries. Or if you surrender it, whatever they owe you, they just first pay themselves back, you know, pay off that loan. So it's a simple subtraction problem. There's no selling a house and evicting people. And mm-hmm. so that's ultimately why on the front end, they don't, you know, they don't care what your credit is because they know you're good for it because they're guaranteeing the collateral themselves. Whereas the commercial bank is not guaranteeing that your house is always going to be worth $200,000 going exactly. forward. They can't. Exactly. No, it was interesting that you, it's fine that you're talking at length about this because I was going to ask you, can you share some of the common objections that you hear? Because I'm pretty sure that they're going to be the same objections that we hear on a regular basis. And that is definitely a very uh, adept argument that the person was making. And at the same time, you, all of the points that you're making are true. You don't have to, with a life insurance policy, have the requirement to qualify with the bank. You can pay back how you want and when you want. They're not going to foreclose. And you don't have the potential to lose value in that main asset. And so I think that's just very, very well said. And and anyone who's listened has probably heard us maybe package that over a few different podcasts, but it's really nice to have it all in one place and said from somebody else that's besides us, just in different language and different um, vocabulary. So what are some of the other objections that you feel um, maybe the book really did a really great job of highlighting that can come up with privatized banking or IBC, infinite banking, and the the counter to that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So another common one, and again, I like addressing this because it gives us an opportunity to explain how this stuff works, is the, the whole, you know, oh, everyone knows a whole life policy is a terrible place to put your money. You should buy term and invest the difference. So I want to be clear here, I'm really just defending the honor of whole life policies, whereas IBC takes them as a given, and then you're you know, doing cash flow management laid on top of that. So this really isn't even getting into the the you know essence or the the theory of IBC, but obviously if people think whole life policies are terrible, then you know they're gonna that's gonna be a stumbling block to to considering IBC. Right. So, because the the policy is the product, beneath that's the strategy. So you have to agree or you have to right. accept the product and the strategy. Well you have to want to do the strategy first and then accept the product. So so you're right. just talking about the product. Yeah. Yeah, IBC yeah the, way, is the strategy. Yeah the way we put it is that the whole life insurance policies are the platform upon which IBC is implemented is, is yes. the language we, we use awesome. in the book. Um, and so, yeah, if, if people don't like that foundation, then they're going to be hesitant to, you know, step onto it. And so, yeah, so real quickly, as I'm sure that your listeners know, but just to make sure we're not losing anybody. So the buy term invested difference says, Hey, other things equal for the same death benefits, same person uh, to get a term policy is going to be way cheaper in terms of the monthly or annual premium than a comparable whole life policy. And so if you get the cheaper term policy and you know, have your death benefit coverage locked in that way, and then with the money you save on the premium, go put that in a, in a mutual fund that you know maybe is exposed to the stock market a little bit and maybe you know some fixed income. And over time, historically, we look at retur- historical returns, mutual funds like this outperform the growth, you know, the internal cash surrender value growth of a standard whole life policy. And so they're going to say, look, you have the same death benefit coverage. So that's taken care of, you know, in case you get a widow or something. And then the investment side outperforms by putting the money into a a mutual fund. And so don't listen to these charlatans trying to give you a whole life policy. That's, that's the claim. So I just go through and show how many different things are wrong with that comparison. And so to be clear, 
we're not arguing you should never get a term policy, you know, especially for younger, you know, if you get, if you're a 25 year old breadwinner and you got a young family and a bunch of kids and you're just starting your career, you probably do need a big term policy, at least for a while, you know, in case something happens to you early on. But they're the, you know, the, the critics of whole life are trying to make the other case saying you should never get a whole life policy. It's always more advantageous to get, you know, buy term and invest the difference. And so just walking through some of the reasons that's not true. So the, yeah, the let's big, do that. Yeah. So the big issue is it's an apples to oranges comparison. And just to consider the ways they're not equivalent, you know, shows how uh, robust these whole life policies are. So for one thing, the most obvious, if you get a term policy, at some point the term expires and then you don't have the life insurance coverage anymore. Mm-hmm. And you either at that point either have to go get another term policy where the premiums are going to be higher or, you know, something has happened in the meantime, you've developed a condition, you might be uninsurable. And so when like a Dave Ramsey tries to go through, you know, a, a glib, simple argument to apparently or allegedly demonstrate that buy term and invest the difference always outperforms, he kind of, you know, I don't know what he says at the end, like, let's say you're a 30 year old and you get a 20 year term policy. Once you turn 50 and that term policy expires, Dave Ramsey says at that point, you know, you can self-insure because you've done my money market, you know, or money makeover program and you've got so much, but to self-insure, you know what that means? That means you don't have insurance. That's mm-hmm. what that means. All right. And so again, it's not apples to oranges. And the, the way to see that is with the, even with a term policy, if it's a five, 10, 15, 20 year term policy, the premiums keep going up, you know, even the annualized premiums. And, and, and I ask audiences, why is that? And, and it's obvious. Well, because the longer the term policy, the older you are, you know, on the, on the back end of that. Mm-hmm. And so they know the more likely you are to die and they're going to have to pay that death benefit. So that's why over the course of it, the average premium that they charge every year has to be higher. And I say, okay, so if you understand why like a 30 year old getting a 20 year term policy, that premium's higher than if you got a five year term policy, what if he has a whole life policy that goes through age 121? that's effectively like a 91-year term policy, if you think about it. Right. And so that's why it's more expensive. It's not because they rip you off. It's because that coverage is locked in if you want to keep paying the premium for your whole life. It's got the built-in renewal. And so if you understand- to pay out. Right. So just like if, if Dave Ramsey said, oh, you should always get a five-year term policy, you're dumb to get a, a 15-year one because the five-year term policy is always cheaper- Go run the numbers, folks. A five-year term policy is always cheaper than a 10-year or 15-year. That would be the goofiest. You wouldn't trust him you know, going forward. You say he obviously, like, yeah, that's a true statement, but that's misleading. That's and like so saying likewise, one gallon of gas is less costly than 20 gallons of gas. So right. whenever you fill up at the, t- at the station, you should just put in one gallon only because it's much cheaper than filling right. your tank. Yes, right. Yeah, that's another good way to put it. So, <laughs> so there's that element. And then another one I'll, I'll mention is again, it's very misleading to look at, you know, the, the returns in like a mutual fund, especially one that's exposed to the stock market. And historically, like, oh, that made 8% over this time frame. whereas, you know, life insurance, you know, permanent value, cash value, life insurance policies, the cash value only rose at such and such percent. So the main problem with that is the risk element that mm-hmm. yes, in the, the stock market bounces around. And so, you know, it's, it's standard. That, again, to analogy, that would be like if Dave Ramsey said, you should always buy equities, never buy fixed income, because historically equities tend to outperform. And right, they have to, you know, ex ante because they're riskier. Mm-hmm. So that would, be a, that would be a goofy argument. So like in a life insurance policy loan, or sorry, uh, cash values, once 
your cash value hits a certain level, that's a floor. It can never go down. It can only mm-hmm. go up. Your mutual fund balance doesn't have that property. It's not that it always goes up and the worst that can happen in a given year is it doesn't go up by as much as you thought it would. And yet there's locked in guarantees about the performance, the minimum performance of the cash value inside a whole life policy. So again, it's very misleading to act like the only criterion is the average rate of return. And those are misleading too, what they don't, you know, if they oh, don't absolutely. fees and so on. But I'm saying even on its own terms, even if the numbers were correct and, and you know, not misleading, that still doesn't prove anything like what Dave Ramsey is leading his audience to believe. So those are the last thing I'll mention. If you do configure a whole life policy according to the way Nelson Nash wanted, you're taking the dividends and plowing them back into buy more paid up additional insurance. So the death benefit itself goes up over time. So even if at the beginning of this, you know, horse race between the buy term invest the difference and the IBC strategy, you had the same death benefit locked in, you know, for the term policy and the whole life one, over time you would end up with more death benefit on the whole life side because that's part of what the strategy is, if you want to call it that, is you you know, typically you'd be plowing the stuff back in and buying more life insurance. So again, even on its own terms, they're just not apples to oranges. So it doesn't mean it's always better for one versus the other, but the way, you know, again, Dave Ramsey trying to say, look at I've shown you this is clearly better, it's only because he's ignored all of its downsides and only, you know, stressed a few points. You so, know, I I love that. And the, I feel like there's we could talk about that particular argument, the buy term invest the difference versus whole life. We could I mean, there's like 25 more points that we could make about that and you're we'll link to previous articles and content that we've done on that. Uh, I'm going to also check if our audience has any questions at this time. And we invite your questions. If you have questions for Dr. Bob Murphy, Uh, Bruce, go ahead. Uh, Bob, I'm going to go a little bit away from the case for the IBC, because I think this is a very important topic and you're the expert. I mean, you, you've talked about this. This is, this is right in your wheelhouse. Um, Interest rates are at a historic low and uh, dividends are an interest rate or interest sensitive uh, pro, uh, driven by interest rates. What can you say going forward um, about the likelihood that interest rates, because I think the Fed, the Fed has come out and said it's likely we're going to keep interest rates low for the next two years. But then I hear other people say, no, I think they're actually going to start ratcheting up interest rates. Um, but if they do start at ratcheting up interest rates, can you tell the listeners what is likely going to happen to dividend rates going forward? And thus, illustrations that people are getting now, what will happen to those illustrations going forward? Okay. Yeah. So I, as far as, first of all, like, you know, what do we think the Fed's going to do? So they're, they're in a, it's a weird situation where, you know, they pushed interest rates to historic lows, I mean, in, in Europe and other, you know, Japan and stuff, they're literally negative short-term interest rates, which a lot of economists said was impossible, uh, you know, earlier. And so, the, yeah, this is kind of uncharted territory, but to the extent that it's, uh, you know, very loose monetary policy, the concern is that, oh, at some point, price inflation is going to break out. And, and there's various reasons as well, gee, why hasn't that happened before? But I, so my prediction is that the Fed is going to keep interest rates low until the point at which the dollar starts significantly slipping against other currencies and or you know domestically prices start rising such that you know it's it's too painful and they got to start ratcheting up rates to to stem that and so they they've sort of gotten a lot of wiggle room since basically 2009 where they've had what on paper looks like very aggressive loose monetary policy without 
what you normally would think of as the downside of that. So it's sort of like, hey, well, let's just keep pumping money in. Nothing bad seems to be happening. Gasoline's not $20 a gallon. Let's just go ahead and keep doing this. But if, if that were to ever happen, then they would be forced. You know, They can't just keep interest rates at 0.1% if price inflation's running at 8%. You know, They'd have to raise rates just like in the late 70s and early 80s that you know Paul Volcker jacked rates way up in order to get inflation under control. So I think that's where they are. And also, just as a signal to investors around the world, the Fed continually you know, puts out guidance saying this is our path back to normalcy. You know, so they, they, the reason investors didn't just short the dollar, whereas like if you know, the Zimbabwe central banker says, oh, we're going to quintuple the money supply in the next few years, you know, people respond one way, whereas when the Fed makes a comparable announcement, people take it in stride because they say, oh, no, the people running the Fed are more responsible they'll back this thing off if, if, the, you know, if there's side effects that, that get too severe. So that's kind of the framework. And so they wanted to, and they did. The Fed was tightening a few years ago. And then because you know, the economy started sputtering, then they you know, flipped around. And then of course, with the corona crisis, you know, the all bets were off. So I think they're always going to want to be pushing up. And it's only if the economy is very tepid that they're going to you know, not be able to raise rates. So I think Especially the longer you extend your your horizon, higher interest rates are in the future. If for no other reason than they're already so low, they can't really go much lower, can they? So there's there's that element. So yes, as far as the life insurance company, I mean, this is you know standard stuff here. This is an insider information coming from me, but yes, the life insurance company takes in premiums. They go buy financial assets in order to try to match you know their assets and liabilities. They know actuarially down the road with these cohorts of policy blocks that we're issuing, you know, we're going to have this much death benefit claims come in. These people might surrender their policy. So they know, roughly speaking, in the aggregate, how much money is going to be going out the door at future points. And they got to make sure they have enough fixed income assets on their books to match those up. So yes, in an environment of very low interest rates, especially where, you know, there's scenarios in which interest rates are going to remain low for a long time, they have to, in their illustrations, show people very modest expectations because they don't want to you know mislead the, the client and so that's so what would happen in a scenario where interest rates did rise down the road it, there would be a transition period as you know as they had to roll over their their portfolio but the way that would show up is they would have better investment returns than they had been predicting earlier Absolutely. and hence they would have more divisible surplus mm-hmm. and so for policies, you know, in a participating, you know, uh, structure, which is what, you know, the dividend whole life policy is typically, that's, you know, the policyholder would see higher dividends. So that's the way that, you know, they would, they would get, you know, those extra returns. So that, so that's, that's what would happen in an environment like that, that, yeah, the policyholders would, they would get, you know, higher dividend payments than they may have originally thought. Again, once projected. Yeah, once and the, and the reason, yeah, the reason I bring that up is because I wanted to hear I want people to hear it from a non uh insurance producer. Mm-hmm. Because all too often uh, people look at um insurance illustrations and take them as the gospel. Like this is what's going to happen. They they take it as a contract and it's not a contract even though it says in there, you know, they're not guaranteed. These are just projections. The dividends. People, mm-hmm. people still see, yeah, the dividends are not guaranteed, it's still projections. They still see it as thirty years down the road. Oh, look, I'm o- I'm only going to have this, or I I'm going to I'm going I'm going to have this particular amount of money. Um, you can look at it on the guarantee side, 
and say, yes, you're going to have that. But on the dividend side, even though dividends on all the great companies have been paid for a hundred years, they don't, they don't necessarily pay the same dividend rate over those hundred plus years. And, and I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Just to jump in another thing too, that, um, I thought about more recently, I think this is, yeah, I think this is in the book too. Rachel, you're asking other objections. So one objection that we got from. Also, just to, just to um, let you know, we're going to have to wrap really shortly. And we also have a few comments and questions on, on YouTube. So go, go ahead. Yeah. Real fast is I got people saying, look at Dr. Murphy, when you're complaining about the economy, you, you worry that if the dollar were to crash, the Fed would have to jack up interest rates. So if the life insurance company is basically like a big bond fund, won't that crush them, right? Because, you know, interest rates rise, existing bond prices fall. So won't they have a bunch of losses? And so why would I want to be in fixed income assets if I think there's a chance of interest rates spiking? So it's true. If you, if you were just holding bonds, that's an element. And that's why, you know, we Carlson and I recommend a diversified holdings, you know, having gold and things like that too, just in case price inflation does break out. But as far as the life company goes, yes, their assets consist of a lot of fixed income, but so do their liabilities, right? That what they owe people in terms of the death benefit is denominated in dollars, saying, oh, if you were to die, we owe you $750,000. It's not that that number varies with the markets. And so it's so from, you know, from an, uh, an accounting standpoint on the life insurer's books, if interest rates move, their assets and liabilities tend to move in lockstep. And so that, you know, if they, if they perfectly matched assets and liabilities, they wouldn't care what interest rates did that. Yeah. If they had a capital loss on the value of their assets, likewise, their liabilities would go down by the same percentage. Right. And so that's, that I'm just mentioning it to people yeah. that don't think of the life insurance company as merely a big bond fund. They're a life insurance company. And that's important when you try to like think through these things. Yeah. And, and, and another, 10, another 10 seconds, what they, people don't realize is insurance companies have premiums coming in every month so they can purchase the bonds at the new price. Right. They, don't have, they don't have to worry about redeeming the other bonds at a lower price to buy new bonds. This is what a typical person has to do, but the insurance company does it because they're thinking 100 years from now, not you know, within a person's lifetime. So that's mm-hmm. a, another key point. Go ahead, Rachel. What's some questions? Okay. So we've got uh, so much that we're not going to be able to get to it all, but we do have an interesting conversation going on here uh, between Nolan Rosler and Sebastian Calderon on YouTube. So um, specifically, um, Nolan asks, Dr. Murphy, should legislation be passed to get rid of the MEC limits? So there's that. Um, Sebastian was asking the there's a book here. I've p- posted the link then for the case for IBC.com. We also want to find out from you where else they can get it. Um, there is also uh, some commentary that you should challenge Dave to a debate, Dave Ramsey directly. And they said, I know he won't accept just to get exposure to IBC. Um, and then one person was saying this better make me wealthy, this conversation we're having today. And somebody said that they want to go ahead and get whole life insurance as soon as they pay off their debts, specifically student loans. So again, and I've only read a, a po- mm-hmm. small portion of the comments here. So what's really interesting about this whole concept is um, I would like for you to share 
How does life insurance make you wealthy? Because it is a long-term wealth builder. It's a foundation for building wealth. And I think it's not the one flashy, um, quick return product you're going to get. It's not a sexy, it's not a, you know, a flashy financial product, but it is a long-term wealth builder. Can you share what that means? Sure. So yeah, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get rich slowly scheme, right? That it's, (laughs) uh, you know, and it's amazing when you, when you show these illustrations to people and just look and say, look, if you just, especially if it's a younger person and even put in just not that much early on, but then yeah, later on, like it's, it's amazing how much the thing grows. And you know, that's basically just the power of compound interest. Um, so I would, and, and as far as the person saying how they have student loan debt, again, I'm not in production. So I, you, you talk to somebody like Bruce on this to, to go through it, but there are plenty of people who were up to their eyeballs in credit card or student loan to other types of debt. And they talk to somebody who knows how IBC works and they show them, look at without, with the same cash flow. You can just rearrange what you're doing and, and dig out of this much more quickly and then be on a better foundation. So I would just say people don't think this is something that only pertains to wealthy people. That Absolutely. Obviously, the policies that were, are designed for you and calibrated to you are going to look different depending on the person's circumstances, but there are ways to you know, do this just with just about anybody. Um, I'm trying to, th- oh, the, as far as the mech stuff. So I, I mean, I'm against the government taxing people's money, period. And so we, so yes, if the government got rid of all income taxation, all the stuff about MEC limits would go out the window too. If, if you know, and so I, I, I like in a, in a perfect world, yes, in the way it used to be, you could just write a single check for a one, you know, a paid up at one, you know, a single premium uh, payment to have a lot of paid up insurance. And there's ways in which, you know, that was kind of the ideal in terms of the, the purity of the concept to, you know, have it all go in right at once. And then, as you as you mentioned, yeah, Congress changed the rules. And let me just mention on that because it kind of pushes against the Dave Ramsey narrative. The reason Congress introduced what we now call the MEC rules was because after the '86 Tax Reform Act, too many rich people were dumping money into these types of you know policies, these high cash value policies. And so Congress realized, whoa, whoa we got to you know limit this. And so say what you will, but when too many rich people are doing something because it's so advantageous in terms of the tax code and for other reasons, that's not a clearly dumb thing to do with your money, right? Like that, those two don't go together. And yet Dave Ramsey would have you believe. Uh, last thing I'll mention is Ramsey recently had a thing on his show where he was by name, you know, someone called in talking about IBC and Ramsey was saying how dumb it was. So I am going to provide a, a, a YouTube video response to that, that the, that the Nelson Nash Institute YouTube channel will be up. Uh, you know, in the near future. So I'm not going to debate him directly, but I will go through some of his points. Again, not to pick a fight, but just to, well, he's the one to pick the fight, but just to show like it's, it's, a, it's a good teaching, exp- you know, teaching moment to, to show he made these claims. When you see why those are wrong, you understand how this stuff works better. Well, Bob, no, thanks absolutely. for coming, coming on today. I think maybe one of the, one of these times we ought to have Bob on and just do a whole question and answer on YouTube. Maybe so. And Cause that, this that is a, a good, yeah, good, good there's show. a lot of dialogue. I think this is one of the biggest dialogues that we've had. And I'm I'm having trouble uh, keeping up with both pieces here and making sure I read everything and try to provide some commentary. So um, a couple of things in closing, if you are interested in finding out how privatized banking, infinite banking can work for you, you can absolutely book a call with us at themoneyadvantage.com. You can go directly to our calendar from that link. 
if you go to our website. We also have articles and show notes for every single podcast episode that we've done. And there's some several really valuable ones that give a lot of this foundation. If you're willing to dig in, do the work, start understanding what life insurance and whole life can do for you. And again, we're specifically talking about high cash value, dividend paying, whole life insurance company with a mute or whole life insurance with a mutual company. And this is for the purpose of being able to use it for privatized banking. So um, Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for being with us today. How can our audience find your book specifically? I did post the link for, um, wow, I'm having to go back a long ways. The case for IBC.com. Is that the best way for them to get your book? I know it's available on Amazon, the Nelson Nash Institute as well. Where do you prefer people to go? Right. So yeah, the, the actual URL is thecaseforibc.com. We'll take you there. If you find it on Amazon, that's that's fine too. It's just sometimes if it's a you know obscure seller, we don't know if the person's gonna you know put a little note to you in the book or something. Oh, right. So we can't we can't control that. But yeah, so if you go through the caseforibc.com, that's gonna come from David Stern's stockpile that he'll he'll mail out to you. So that's what I would recommend. But if you get it anywhere, it's probably fine. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Murphy. I really recommend the book. I need to read it personally myself. I'll just be honest and raise my hand and say that I need to do that. Um, I love being able to talk to you about these ideas because I think there's things that people are wrestling with on a regular basis and really understanding how something works is really key to being able to create wealth. And I heard this fascinating idea the other day and Bruce and I've been talking through this, but if you are going to choose to become a wealth creator, the price that you need to pay to become that is to educate yourself, be able to think differently, consume the information, find the videos, dig deep, find the real facts, the meat, the foundation beneath what everyone else is saying. Don't just listen to rhetoric. Don't just listen to fancy ideas or something that sounds good at face value. Look beneath that and find out what the wealthy are doing because success follows clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking Put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Cato's Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Cato's Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Cato's Capital Incorporated or Cato's Management Incorporated.